Welcome to the Online Bodyguard Podcast with host Philip Rendell, CEO and founder of Diffuse, a global threat and intelligence consultancy that blends psychology and intelligence to mitigate threats and risks to prominent people and brands. Hello again and welcome to the Online Bodyguard Podcast. It's my great pleasure today to introduce a good friend of mine and, and we met a few years ago when we were both working in the House of the Parliament in the UK uh, following the assassination of Joe Cox, MP. So I'd like to introduce Suki Baker of uh, the Susie Lamptey Trust. She's the chief executive of the Susie Lamptey Trust. Now, Suki has been with the Trust for over seven years, holding the position of head of policy and development, and more recently, the chief executive. During her time, Suki has overseen the growth and the development of its helpline and its advocacy services, led its policy and campaign teams, and designed and delivered a number of complex national projects. Notably, she has been the programme director for the world's first multi-agency stalking intervention programme called MASIP, or MASIP <laughs> and overseeing the ongoing campaign for the national minimum standards for taxis and private hire vehicles. Suki was also seconded for over 12 months from the Susie Lamplew Trust as an advisor to the Parliamentary Security Department following the death of Joe Cox, where she supported and advises MPs and their staff in issues relating to personal safety. And I can expand on that because she also helped train my team in the police, um, which was the Parliamentary Liaison Investigation Team, around the more complex issues around stalking. And we'll, we'll touch on this because it's really relevant that that I set up this team in Parliament with no expertise and no training whatsoever in stalking. Um, and thankfully, Suki and her team were able to to change that and give us the, the training that we needed. But that's a, that's the subject we're going to come back to. Alongside her experience in frontline services, Suki has also worked on policy, research and developmental capacities with areas of specialty in the violence against women and girls sector, including trafficking, honour-based violence, domestic and sexual violence, in addition to stalking. She was heavily involved in the successful coercive control campaign which brought law changes to domestic violence in the UK. Welcome, Suki. That was a that was a big introduction, big introduction, but quite rightly too. Bear in mind all your expertise. So let, let's start because because chief executive of the Susie Lamplew Trust. So mm. for those that don't know who Susie Lamplew was or what the trust is, can you can you tell us more about it? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, we just um, had our thirty sixth anniversary couple of days ago. So the trust was set up by Paul and Dinah Lamplew in 1986 following the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. So she was an estate agent, a 25-year-old estate agent. She was working in London um, in Fulham and she went missing uh, during the working day. Um, and it's um, the person who's referred to as a Mr Kipper, it's what she wrote in her diary, she was going to see a Mr Kipper on a visit. Um, she she took her bag, her, her keys, um, uh, but the vehicle was sort of left um, as if she had intended to come back to it, but she was never seen again after that visit. So Paul and Dinah Lamplew set up the trusts to really work to make personal safety a, a public policy priority. And they worked tirelessly to uh, campaign on issues of harassment, um, of stalking. And actually, they believe that Susie had been stalked. And that's really what 
led our long history in campaigning in this area. And today we, we've got three key objectives. So campaigning is one of those. We campaigned for the harassment legislation to come into force in 1997. Subsequently, the 2012 stalking legislation that came into place. And so, you know, we're going to touch on that a little bit more in the podcast. Um, we've got a huge um, education function. We do a lot of training and consultancy around personal safety, stalking, harassment. And uh, we've got our fantastic frontline services so the National Stalking Helpline and Advocacy Service. We have a, a trauma advocacy component that we've recently piloted. And as you mentioned, our perpetrator intervention programs as well. So a huge amount of developments occurred over the last sort of 36 years. And through all our frontline services, in fact, we support over 14,000 individuals every year. It's a tremendous amount of work um, that the team do and fantastic amount of expertise. Um, but actually the tip of the iceberg, when we look at the number of individuals we know who are experiencing these sorts of crimes every year. And, and is it purely directed towards women or, are, you know, if men came to you who have been mm-hmm. victims of harassment or stalking, whether 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 straight men or gay men or, or whatever, would you mm-hmm. help them or is it just women? Absolutely. No, we, we, we work with um, um, men, with women, um, um, with anyone who identifies as whatever sexuality and gender they identify as. Um, we do recognise, however, that the majority of individuals coming through our doors are women. Um, 80% of people who will experience stalking are women. Um, and we know that their experiences tend to differ from those, um, from, from, from men's experience. They tend to experience more threats um, to life, essentially. And we know through our research that we've done with others like Professor Jane Wellington Smith, that the correlation um, between um, stalking and femicide is really high. In fact, in a three-year uh, period of research that she undertook, she found that in 94% of all cases, stalking was prevalent in the antecedent history. So we know that um, it sits within the violence against women and girls framework. Stalking has to be seen within that framework. And we need to understand the risks that are associated with that so we can ensure the proper mechanisms are in place to support those victims through that process. But it's important to recognise, I think, that, that Professor Monkton Smith's research was, was, taught, was looking at domestic relationships, particularly, wasn't she? In terms of the, the femicides, it tended to be, you know, those people that were known to each other in terms of in terms, in terms of the rate of murders that went on from stalking. The femicides actually looked at um, a broad range, so those in an intimate and uh, non-intimate relationship setting. But we do know that um, over half of those cases of those women who come to us are being stalked by an ex-intimate partner. Um, and that is true for sort of the general statistics across the board, across the uh, um, uh, across the UK, with numbers of other services and the sorts of um, reporting that you're seeing coming through the criminal justice system as well. Approximately half of those people are being stalked by an ex-intimate partner. But what I would say with that other half, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the risk is less, because what we're often seeing is... Um, either a desire for a relationship or a delusion that there is a relationship. And that therefore means that the same risk factors that play out in an ex-intimate setting play out um, in those other typologies um, of of stalking cases. So it's really important that professionals are vigilant to that and understand the specific risks and motivations with those different typologies of stalker. Generally speaking, stalking is about fixation, it's about obsession, it's a repeated and wanted um, behaviour, but the motivations of of, of, of different um, stalkers need to be understood to, to have the right support mechanisms in place, as, 
as you will know from your background. And, and I think that's so that's that's a really important issue because I think my own experience of when I was in the police, and you know, bear in mind I did thirty years in the police, and most of it as a detective, and I worked on domestic violence teams and hate crime teams and everything. It wasn't until I actually obviously met yourself and then went on um, some other courses um, that I learnt about, you know, there, you know, we use this term stalking mm-hmm. as a kind of group uh, or we use it as a, as a term that we, we think just most people just think, oh, it's just stalking. It's one thing, a homogenous mm-hmm. group. But actually, mm-hmm. we know that there are you know, different types of stalkers. They pose yeah. different threats, and that's a really important piece, which I don't think is very well understood, even within policing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and it is far more far more complex than just saying yes. Everybody is a is a stalker. I mean, if we take it just even a step back, you know, the system and professionals tend to struggle with what's the difference between harassment and stalking. Uh, what's the difference between malicious comms and harassment and stalking, coercive control, harassment, stalking, and really trying to understand the nuances between that. Um, but what we'd really argue is try to strip that away and have a look at the behaviours, what's occurring, what, 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 what are, if we, if we just try to look at the incidents that are occurring, and is there more than two incidents occurring? So, you know, behaviours include things like following, watching, loitering, um, spying on someone, it can include things like physical violence, sexual violence, um, cyber stalking. If you've got two or more of those incidents, usually a person will experience over 100 before they're reporting to the police. So you'll be seeing multiple incidents. Is it unwanted to the victim? Is it repeated and unwanted? If it is, and it's, it's underpinned by that fixation and obsession, then yes, you're seeing stalking. But absolutely, you're right. Then you've got those typologies. That's it across those. So as I mentioned, half of them are, are being stalked, half of individuals are being stalked by an ex-intimate partner. So we'd call those rejected stalkers. Um, uh, they, they, will, they will feel a rejection because the person has, 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 has left them. And often they're motivated by um, wanting to either reconcile that relationship or um, it's that sort of love, hate, destroy that person. Um, then we have what we w- would refer to as resentful stalkers. Um, so they're stalkers who feel that they've been mistreated by the system. Um, and often they might target somebody who represents a particular issue, as uh, a, a particular uh, uh, a political allegiance, um, um, or they might yeah, represent a certain group. Um, we have intimacy seekers. They emerge out of the context of loneliness. Um, uh, so... Um, there'll be a desire for a relationship. It may not necessarily be a sexual relationship, unlike incompetent suitors where they um, are um, looking for that sort of uh, relationship, often short-term um, um, sexual contact. And then we have predatory stalkers, and they're, they're the hardest group to identify because often we'll know of a predatory stalker at the point of attack. And that is, uh, we believe, may have been Susie Stalker, so someone who identified her who may have been watching, loitering, spying, and the motivation is very much the end game, that, that, that attack. And as I said, often they may only come to the attention of criminal justice um, services at, um, at that point. So let's go back to a point you made earlier on about legislation. Mm-hmm. Because I've always felt that it's the legislation that causes a lot of these issues. You know, if we look at the legislation mm-hmm. around stalking, it doesn't define what stalking is. And it constantly refers to harassment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, I mean, you know, talk, talk to me about, about, yeah. about that and where you think we might better improve that. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not a perfect piece of legislation by a long stretch, certainly. What it did do, so the reason the campaign in 2012 took place is because we recognised that the harassment legislation didn't capture um, the fixation of session, didn't quite capture the impact, the day-to-day impact on the individual, the alarm and distress. So um, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the, with the famous Skittles case in the US where um, the, the perpetrator left a Skittle everywhere that he went on, um, you know, on her bedside table, on her dining table, um, on her desk at work. And she had a complete nervous breakdown when uh, she found a skittle on the passenger seat um, in her car. How did he get into this car? What he was saying to her is, I can infiltrate any part of your life. I can access it. I know your movements. I know where you are. And the psychological terror that has created but you've got to remember there's no physical violence there. And what we were finding under the harassment legislation is those sorts of crimes were therefore coming out with minimum of a few months in terms of sentencing because there was an absence of physical violence. But it doesn't capture the sheer terror that those crimes um, create and the impact it has. So what the legislation did by recognising the alarm and distress is it really brought that into, the, into focus. So that was really welcome. But you're absolutely right, the legislation doesn't have a legal definition of what stalking is. It does mirror the harassment legislation, so in certain parts you have to prove harassment to, to prove stalking. So it is, not, um, it is not a simple piece of legislation to understand. Having said that, however, we also find in our experience, we do a lot of training with criminal justice professionals, particularly with the police, as you know, we, we work with yourselves. When professionals understand the basic concepts of stalking, they're able to apply the legislation far more effectively. And so it often comes down to training. And we've seen that in forces across the UK where there's been an investment in the training. We see better prosecution rates, better reporting, better conviction. So. So it isn't a perfect piece of legislation, but I think it also goes hand in hand with a lack of understanding and and training as well. We could still get better prosecution, um, even from the existing piece of legislation, if we even at this stage had marginally better training in lots of places. As you will know from your experience, it's almost non-existent uh, across the UK. Yeah. So so do you think it's been a success? The the the, the you know the introduction of stalking legislation. Oh, I mean. It's a good question. Define what success is, I suppose. But (laughs) yes, exactly. In being able to name the crime, in being able to validate victims' experiences, in being able to say, no, this isn't just malicious communication, it's not just harassment. You're actually talking about a fixated individual. Um, And we have seen successful prosecutions, you know, be a lie to say we haven't. And we have seen them, the the maximum sentence is is 10 years, 14 if there's aggravated features. And we have seen very rarely sentencing pushing in that direction but very rarely the average sentence is still around 18 months um and in fact when we look at conviction rates they still sit sadly at about 1.1 percent if we're looking at uh, the comparison between the number of individuals we know who experience stalking that's about 1.5 million people will experience stalking a year according to the office of national statistics and if we look at the conviction figures just ending in march 2020 it was about 1.1 percent so something isn't working and do, Something just do, isn't working in that do, process. Is that part of the wider issue around, you know, violence against women and girls, and 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 also going on to sort of the rape prosecutions and everything mm. around mm. everything around where females are victims of violence, 
you know, very often, not exclusively, but very often perpetrated by men, we seem to struggle with successfully prosecuting those. And I know there's, I mean, I've, I've, I've investigated them. I know there's complexes and it's not easy and there's challenges. Mm-hmm. But, but that's a pretty appalling prosecution rate, you know, less than one or less than 2% um, yeah. for something that we know uh, causes so many murders amongst women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we do have to ask ourselves some serious questions. What is happening here in terms of the culture and the environment? Absolutely. Because you're right, um, this isn't the only violence against women and girls crime that has that low prosecution rate. It's, it's probably one of the lowest. Um, I'm not saying that the others are particularly high. They're still sitting around that, you know, one, two, three, four percent. It's all appalling. Um, and as I said, there is about there is something about understanding, about training and recognising that experience, the impact, the risk. But actually, I think we do need to ask ourselves some questions about the culture. What is happening here? Um, if we look at the criminal justice journey, the attrition rates through that whole process from report um, through to uh, uh, through to, uh, prosecution, um, through to conviction, it, it 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 dramatically falls off through that whole process, through the whole criminal justice journey. So what what is happening here? And Susie Lamptey Trust is calling for a national task force, in fact, to really look at and understand the specifics of why those figures so dramatically drop at that various point through the through the journey. Um, as you say, the rape review. Um, very rightly so looked at the culture and is there a culture of misogyny that perhaps um, needs to be addressed 50% of victims who come through to us on our frontline services have already been to the police and said that they've had they're unsatisfied or deeply unsatisfied with the police response they've not been believed they've not been heard and therefore they're not getting the right response and we need to ask ourselves the question what is that about why are they not being heard why are they not being believed why have they gone through multiple professionals before someone's validating their experiences and what what for, what makes it more shocking for me if, if that's possible is that you know we've had in this country two female prime ministers mm. a number of female home secretaries at least one mm. female dpp we've got mm-hmm. lots of female prosecutors lots of female judges and yet despite all that um presence of women in very, very key political and criminal justice roles, we're still failing women in what is an incredibly crucial part of life. And I I know that my own, when I look at myself, and I remember, you know, when you and I were working together, I came home one day to say it to my wife and said, oh, we've had this this, um, earlier abuse at one of the MPs. And, um, you know, I said what it was, and my wife was, God, that's awful. And I was kind of like, is it? She said, my God, yeah, that would terrify me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of recognised two things. One, I recognise as a as a man, well, I probably didn't understand that necessarily in terms of because I've never been, I've never experienced that. Mm-hmm. But secondly, mm-hmm. as a criminal justice professional, my, my kind of threshold to um, bad stuff, if you like, was too high. And so mm-hmm. when women or, you know, people were coming to us and saying, I think, you know, I've been treated in this way, and the law is kind of grossly offensive, etc. We were having issues where we thought grossly offensive was different to what the public thought it was. Yeah. So I recognise there was a huge issue around around terminology and and the police's and I, I was part of that. There are understanding and thresholds that, that you know that that we we understand. But what what's what's you know, other than training? 
We've just mm-hmm. seen the lady, the England ladies win, you know, a tremendous mm-hmm. football competition, 90,000 mm-hmm. people on, in the stadium, et cetera. You know, yeah. What else can we do around, around violence and women with girls? What, what, you know, is it just literally we're going to have to start training children at that age to change the whole culture? I mean, I, th- I think... I think this this is a much broader, wider systemic issue. Um, and you're absolutely right. We need to look at the education piece. We need to look at um, our, our, our culture, our institutions, our infrastructure. Yes, um, it is fantastic to have those women, as you've just said, in those, in, in those senior positions. But we have to remind ourselves that actually it is still predominantly a male structure. It is still predominantly, those roles are still predominantly held Um, by men and as you say do we actually really understand um, what we're hearing when a victim um, comes forward can we actually really empathize can we really appreciate the impact that that's having on that individual the fear that that may be creating I mean if we just have a think about what happens when we lose our wallet and just the chaos it might cause in your your day that day and it's not we're not even talking about risk here uh, in terms of fear or, or or the rest of it now have a think about if you've got a stalker and they're turning up at your workplace they're potentially loitering around your children's school you're afraid of whether they can access your home they may indeed have accessed your home they're potentially hacking into your accounts uh, your email accounts, um, your Amazon accounts, they're infiltrating every aspect um, of your life. And the context of that just simply sometimes isn't st- understood what that means in totality in terms of the, the experience. But going back to your point in terms of what do we need to do, there does need to be a cultural shift because I think we have really normalised a lot of those behaviours. If we're just looking at um, Street harassment and the Susie Lampton Trust does a huge amount of work in, in terms of uh, harassment in public spaces. Uh, 88% of respondents that we surveyed uh, found, uh, we found that they experienced unwanted, violent, aggressive or sexual behaviours on UK public transport in the last five years. And 90% of them had experienced unwanted behaviours at least once um, in their lifetime. So the figures are just really harrowing. Most women will experience some form of sexual harassment in public spaces. We have to be calling that behaviour out. And that isn't just a job of, of women. That That is, as you say, that is men also standing up and calling that behaviour out. So we're, we're, we're breaking down those barriers. We're not allowing it just to be normalised. And that's not just in in. in in, in public spaces, but that's in the in the offline world as well. We've seen the huge amount of misogyny that women uh, experience, and it's all along a continuum of that abuse. If we allow that to normalise, then we start hearing the things that we heard through the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. Or, so, well, you know, she wasn't believable. Um, I, I didn't believe her test. I mean, just the, the 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 narrative that came out was so incredibly toxic. But we need to be challenging that at, at every step of the way, um, and that is everybody's responsibility. That is that is that is in terms of you know a, a direction at a senior level in terms of yes, there are, are those people who govern um, the country, but also in terms of what we're seeing that on the street, we need to be we need to be calling it out. It just cannot be acceptable. Um, and and the, the trust has um, actually just recently partnered with um, L'Oreal and an NGO in the, in the US called Right to Be, and we are um, rolling out bystander training. It's, a, it's really um, 
a really simple program. It's an hour long. It's free training to really encourage you to 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 get online. It's um, it's delivered um, online, and it's five basic principles of what you can do if you see that sort of harassment occurring um, in a public space. How you can call it out, but how you can do that safely because we want to make sure that bystanders aren't also put at risk to recognise the personal safety for them as well in those situations. Um, but we we all need to be taking far more responsibility. We'll definitely include that link to that uh, training on the on the um, on the podcast. Um, Thank you. Can I just ask? Just just go back one bit because I had this conversation um, with someone this week about about people talking around cyber stalking. Mm-hmm. I, I have a view that we shouldn't call it cyber stalking because, mm-hmm. in my view, um, all stalking involves a degree of cyber stalking now. Um, and I think I was saying to them that my view was that when we talk about cyber stalking, it's almost as if we're separating it from stalking that, that we all kind of know. And it almost seems to sort of suggest it's less than normal stalking. Um, and so yeah. my, my view was we should get rid of this term cyber stalking and we should just call it stalking. Mm-hmm. What's your kind of views around cyber stalking, stalking, the connection, the disconnect? I would absolutely agree with that perspective. We actually just refer to the whole term as stalking because 100% of our cases have some sort of cyber element, both an online and an offline element. And we need to be able to see it as, again, as I said, in the context of all of those behaviours in the offline and the online world. They were motivated by very similar things. And we need to, by differentiating it, it almost as if you get two separate responses and we shouldn't be. We need to be understanding it within the same level of risk. Um, we need to understand the perpetrator as you would in an offline um, setting. So I, I absolutely agree to that. It's it's a tool that is used to carry out the stalking. And that's how we would recognize it it's still stalking it's still underpinned by the same uh, by the same things it's a part of all of those um, behaviors mechanism that's um, um that's being utilized by the stalker but it, it it yeah it it shouldn't be seen separate um to even when we have um seen cases that are purely on um, online but but as i said most of our cases will have an element of both um online um, and offline. And you're absolutely right. The impact then isn't quite understood. Um, the severity of that isn't quite understood. And far too often, victims are coming through to our service are being told, well, just, just close your account down. Just, just don't look at that. Block them. Yeah. Just block them. I think one of exactly. the really interesting things that I've, I've experienced with, with, you know, with people that have been cyber-stalked, if you, you want to use that term, is that there is actually this element of greater fear because they don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. So when they leave, when they walk out to the street, what have you, they're looking around and as they're scanning, you know, and we know that people who are stalked often become um, paranoid and hypervigilant and all, you know, experience mm-hmm. all those different things. Because they don't know who it is, they're looking around and everyone yeah. is potentially that person. So that level yeah. of anxi- anxiety, you know, it, it goes through the roof because because they yeah. can't identify who this person is. Are they watching me now? Yeah. Are they, is it the person that's giving me, I buy coffee of? Who, who is it, this person? So yeah. I think it's yeah. a really, uh, thing. can we, can we talk, touch on, and I don't know what your views on this, around, these apple tags because mm. that's a kind of misunderstood yeah. we talk about that in the media but you know what is that what's all that about um we really try to work with companies to ensure that there's safety by design built in and for us that just was completely not pulled through um 
from a sort of a consumer perspective, when we take stalking out of the scenario, we can understand why something like that would be useful. You've lost your keys. Uh, you've, you've, you've lost your phone. But immediately we started seeing cases coming through on the National Stalking Helpline where that was being abused, where that device was so readily available, um, being thrown into the boot of someone's car to track them. Um, and the person just isn't aware that um, that, that that's, that's happening. Um, so we would really, really urge tech companies to build that safety by design feature in and to really consider the risks that some of these devices can present. Um, I mean, yes, there's Apple Air tags, but, but, but there are other devices, listening devices, tracking devices, hacking devices that are all too easily available um, off, off, off eBay, off, off Amazon. And we need to be taking far more responsibility. Those sites need to be taking far more responsibility um, about how those are um, available, advertised. I mean, there is a question even, should they be? Who, who needs to be using those, those devices? And there needs to be far more built in for the protection of victims when things like that um, go on the market. Yeah. So let's get, just get back to women and violence against girls. I mean, it's, it's a hot topic. Is it is it a hot topic because it's getting worse? Is it a hot topic because we're hearing more about more about it, and and, and because of you know Susie Lamplu Trust and others, there are platforms where women can go and talk about it and engage and report it. You know what, what is it? You know, is it getting worse, or, or is it just more talked about, more more open now? Um, what what is the statistical evidence around that? Yeah. Um- Unfortunately, the statistical evidence is inconsistent because, um, as you'll be aware from your um, your background, the criminal justice recording systems change um, and they're not consistent and they don't talk to each other. So um, Ministry of Justice statistics don't align with CPS um, recording systems, uh, which don't align with police systems. So to build a picture of what's actually happening across the criminal justice system is really, really difficult. And that's problematic in itself because we don't know where... Our, our, our issues are. Um, we definitely know when we're looking at things like you know the, the homicide rate, the feminicide rate, they're not decreasing. So there is a, there is a serious question there that we need to ask ourselves about: what are we doing? What are our approaches to that um, over the over the many decades, last decades? Um, but. I do think when we look at the overarching figures, um, particularly when we're looking at stalking, um, 1.5 million people are experiencing stalking, but the number of reports over over 100,000, it's still quite small in comparison to the number of people we know are experiencing it. So I think there's still a lot more to be done in terms of awareness raising. I don't know if necessarily the crime is increasing, but I still don't think we're... um, I don't think we're reaching all the people who are potentially experiencing that crime type and getting them into the system, getting them the support that they need, um, helping them to identify what's potentially um, happening, and that's and that's that's indicative of those of those figures. It's just it's 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 they're so vast in comparison to the number of people where we know who will be experiencing it and the number of people are being supported. So when you say we know that we've got you know this amount of people are experiencing it, how do you know that? So, so those are the, the 1.5 million figure that comes from the Office of National Statistics. That's an estimate from them, that, that 1.5 million. And the, the most recent figures we've had in terms of um, those that reported to the police 
was in the year ending, so just up to December 2021, there was over 117,000 reports made to the police. So that is that is quite a significant increase in the year before. Right. But that's still a drop in the ocean in comparison to that 1.5 million. And, and also, you know, I, I can tell you that I can almost guarantee you, having been there and having actually dealt with one very recently, that those ones presumably are ones that are classified as a stalking. Exactly. So there'll be lots of others where a woman has gone in to report a stalking. Yes. But it's been probably classified as a harassment or something else. Or malicious cons, yeah. Or yeah. Something and so different. arguably that figure is probably significantly higher. But for whatever reason, um, you know, through th- crime classifications, through police officers not necessarily understanding it, whatever it is, they're not, those figures are likely to be inaccurate. They absolutely are, yeah, and that's why it's so difficult to to, to paint uh, a, a clear picture. You're absolutely right. Um, a huge amount of stalking cases we know are being classified um, as harassment. What I would say, though, is even if you combine the harassment, if we've done this exercise, we've combined sort of malicious comms, harassment, stalking, it's still, a, it's still a drop in the ocean in comparison to the figures of those we know that will be experiencing that 1.5 million people who will be experiencing stalking in any given year it's still really small so again it still tells us where you know where are those people going why aren't they able to access the support that they need um and what's happening in the system that's not um not allowing that uh, to occur so we i mean you know as an example of, of where i think some of the system failures are we we as we discussed previously we we have dealt with a case recently where um Lorraine Sheridan, who's who's uh, arguably one of the kind of global experts on stalking, and, and mm-hmm. obviously she's she's um, a partner in Diffuse. You know, we looked at an incident and wrote a report that this was stalking. Mm-hmm. So there was no, in our view, no hiding away from the fact that this was stalking, written by someone who's arguably an expert, written a PhD on the subject and everything. And yet, when the perpetrator was arrested, he was cautioned for harassment. Mm. Is that something you've heard before? Is that typical or? It is all too common. It is all too common. It's um, it's it's frightening the lack of understanding um, that um, frontline officers have. Um, but I know we've spoken about this before. Actually, should it even be held with pieces, or should it be going much much higher up the? Um, up the ranks held by specialist units because of the, of the impact you know that this crime type has um it's it's quite i mean we would strongly discourage cautions when it comes to stalking it should not be happening because it draws a line under the uh under that under the under the pattern of behaviors so it makes it really difficult when that continues to be able to see that full the, the full context of what's occurring if a caution's already been um issued um, nothing like information notices should be given, um, strong words of discouragement, nothing like that should be given. It should be, because this is about fixation obsession, as soon as you start doing that, you're telling the perpetrator you can act with impunity. It needs to be a hard line. It ne- we need to be going in with stalking legislation and we need to be going in um, putting robust boundaries around perpetrators. But all too often, absolutely, we're not seeing stalking being recognised um for some reason it's felt that it's easier like 
it feels like it's easier for the police to prosecute well, harassment. But it's also CPS. I mean, it's not just the police. You know, the prosecutors, yeah. Yeah. You know, they should yeah. be looking at that and saying, no, this isn't a harassment. This is a stalking. So, we, so arguably, even yeah. if you're going to say, well, we're going to take a caution because it's easier, cheaper and all the other things that go with it. Okay, stalk, you know, caution them for stalking if that's what you have to do. But to, 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 to have huge evidence of a stalking and then downgrade it to a harassment, and then not even charge them, actually just caution them for for that, yeah. seems yeah. to be wholly unacceptable in all different ways. And, and, and as an investigator, you know, when I'm when I'm then dealing with that individual again and I'm doing my research on him, what comes up is he's been cautioned for harassment. Yeah. Rather than you, actually there's evidence here this guy's a stalker and we need to, you know, recognise that in his risk pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's um we we've heard of cases of plea bargaining. So we know perpetrators would rather be sentenced yeah. for harassment than, than that label of stalking. But also I think there's the connotation spoke about it earlier. Um, stalking conjure, conjures up still a very typical image, you know, that man lurking in the bushes. And I don't think professionals quite understand when they're seeing stalking that it is stalking. Um, for National Stalking Awareness Week, which we um, uh, uh, run every year, um, we did a piece of research in April just gone and looking at the role of, of advocates. And we found that the criminal justice response when an advocate is present, advocating as they do for victims and pushing um, for the right access, the right support, the right outcomes, it is incredibly different to when uh, a victim doesn't have an advocate. So, in so, so just as an example, um, when it comes to... Um, uh, an advocate helping uh, people to to report two and five victims um, who were supported by a stalking advocates said that they help them to report to the police and reporting drops to about one in 50 when you haven't got an advocate. Um, one in three when they've got an advocate saw their stalkers charged and that's one in 435 when you haven't got an advocate. One in, one in four saw their stalkers prosecuted and that's one in 556 when there's no advocate present. And one in four victims saw their stalkers convicted when they've got an advocate. And that compares with the national rate of one in 1,000 when there isn't an advocate present. I mean, that's just shocking, isn't it, really? I mean, I, I was going to say earlier on, we, we talked about it a little bit around, you know, why do we need the Susie Lamplew Trust? Why do we need the other stalking charities? <laughs> but I think those statistics make it pretty clear why we need all yeah. these organisations. Yeah. Because... Yeah. Victims are being let down. Yeah, yeah. You know, in an ideal world, we wouldn't exist. In an ideal world, that response, each one of those victims going through that criminal justice system would get the right response. Um, but we, we, simply, we simply aren't there yet. But what I would say is that we, we work really closely with police forces across the UK, and a lot of those officers are calling out for that training, are calling out for that help, for that support. So I think there is a huge question about resourcing here as well and making sure that those officers do get that. And, um, you know, not just two hours of training, but robust training. Yeah. Because actually, if you don't get an intervention early on, these cases end up lasting years and decades. It is in our interest to intervene early and yeah. quickly. And and also by doing so, you know, if we, if we look at it at its bluntest, it's cost effective. You know, exactly. If, I mean, if police and public services are worrying about their budgets, the sooner they get involved and, and, and deal with it, the less money it's going to cost them to investigate and deal with all the issues around it. 
if that case lasts four decades, yeah, the impact on the state, the impact on just criminal justice health systems, the whole system is far, far greater, let alone the impact on the on, on the on the on the victim and all the people surrounding the victim. Many, many dozens of people are impacted around the victim as well. So absolutely getting that early intervention, close those behaviors around the stalker, and actually it it it's only benefits across the whole system and for the victim. So moving on to this, getting back to the street harassment, because I know we've, we've touched on it. And, and it, I, I saw an article, how true it is, I don't know, but there was an article in the paper about Liz Truss, who, who's, who's vying to be the political uh, uh, Conservative Party leader and therefore the Prime Minister, talked about street harassment and how, how it's something she wants to really get her, her um, behind, you know, I, I, whether, she, whether that's a political thing or otherwise, who knows. What is street harassment? Um, it, it's, it can be quite a broad range of behaviours. Um, we often talk about it in the context of um, public sexual harassment. Um, so, for example, somebody's walking down the street, they are being wolf whistle, cat call. Um, actually, there's physical contact, groping, touching, staring, following, um, occurring, um, and it often occurs in public spaces, so it can occur on streets, but actually things like transport as well. More broadly, we can um, understand harassment. Men might experience that um, um, as well. Somebody becoming aggressive on the street. Um, again, those same sorts of um, um, following occurring. Um, it's unwanted behaviour. It makes, it, it has an impact. Um, it um, means that people don't feel safe. Um, it um, it can be incredibly intimidating. And as I spoke about earlier, it's just far too rife when we're looking at the statistics, 88, 90% people, women experiencing those sorts of behaviours. And uh, actually, I'd say young girls, most of that behaviour, that those sorts of experiences start when, um, when, 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 people, when women are young girls um, in their teens. And we just have to stop that system from occurring. That just can't be um, what normal looks like in life. So um, are, are we are we saying then that, that that you know a girl walks past or a woman or girl walks past a a place and she gets wolf whistled? Are we saying that that the police should come and arrest that person for wolf whistling? That could be an example. That could be an example. Um, we've also seen cases where, for example. Um, person's on a train and somebody else is incessantly staring um, or watching and at, or, or sometimes might actually take out a phone and start filming um, or they'll loiter or they'll follow them off or they'll or they may come up and it's very clear that the person makes it clear they don't want uh, the attention and they'll be persistent in, um, in 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 their comments or making that person feeling um, uncomfortable we would argue that there does need to be an offence for public sexual harassment. We do need to call that behaviour out. And by creating that offence, what we're saying is we're not tolerating that behaviour. It won't be accepted. It cannot. We've got to um, move away from that behaviour being normalised. Um, we know that most people, um, though they experience, most women might experience that behaviour um, Many of them won't report, of 86% don't report, because they don't feel 
um, that it's going to be taken seriously or that anything will come from it. And that's why we do need to be sending a really clear message from the criminal justice system that it won't be tolerated. And then we get, you know, and, I've, I've, and, I, and I know this, you know, this, this always happens in the extremes, but we get cases where um, women in the public eye have come forward and said, oh, no, I love it when I'm walking down the street and I get a whistle. You know, I feel like I've, you know, I've dressed night or whatever, you know, so that, you know, and so what happens is the media jump onto that one individual and their own personal experience of this, as opposed to the the majority where they're saying we feel unhappy. And I know this because my wife said to me years ago, I can remember her saying we were she was going to somewhere and we were talking about how you're going to get there, you know, on the map, what have you. Oh, I'm not going down that street. I said, why not? Well, there's a building site there. And I, you know, I just felt uncomfortable walking past that. And it had never crossed my mind. Um, so I think we need to be careful how the media, again, you know, report this and, and trivialise, if you like, the experiences of, of young girls and women. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't think there'd be a single woman who hasn't had to go through that process in their head when they're leaving. How am I going to get to a place safely? Uh, how am I going to get back again? Um, and just even... So- consciously sort of just running through that in their head and that is an everyday that's an everyday Mm. existence Mm. and I think I think men don't often understand that Mm. that it is as simple as um my train might come in slightly later how am I going to get back and um is that going to be a safe route and that constantly um that that constantly weighing Mm. down and that isn't that isn't a world we should be living in I, I talk about um, when I've done some sort of training for people that, that women have a better risk assessment process naturally than men do, because when you walk out of a venue, you're looking at risks. You know, is you know who's that person there? Is that taxi safe? You know, how, is how do I get home? Whereas men don't. I don't walk up a pub and think risk. But you know, not, I'm not saying that's your kind of immediate experience, but for many women that is high on their agenda when they are out and about enjoying themselves. Yes. I mean, it's the, it is the, it is the privileged position that men can find themselves in that they don't have to ask themselves that question. And and, and the the interesting Suki is it's unconscious. We don't know we don't do it because it's natural for us. It's just what we do. Exactly. Exactly. And Yes, women do that and they can do that, but they shouldn't have to do that. That isn't what we should be doing. That isn't the natural state that we should be in every time you yeah, you're 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 going out in the in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um and I and I think we yeah, we it, it, it's a natural state and we just go into it um subconsciously and that isn't the environment we should be living in. And I think I think I think more men need to understand that. <laughs> that but, is and that's, the everyday. But that's the challenge, isn't it? Because for us it's an unconscious thing. We don't we don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And um not everyone's had the conversations that you and I have had and, and and I've had with other people. So they don't which is what the beauty of this podcast hopefully is that you know men will begin to be aware, even if they don't necessarily accept it initially, that that they're actually women's experience is different to a man's experience in terms of how you go about just daily business. Absolutely, absolutely. And we saw it after, after the tragic case of, of, of Sarah Everard, the outpouring that we saw across the press um, from millions of women and men asking the question, what can I do? And I think that's great. We need more men to be asking that question of what can you do? Um, because as I said before, this is everybody's responsibility. Um, and as 
and as I mentioned, we've got the bystander training that partly came out from that call because um, members of the public, men, uh, were asking what can we do to change this narrative? And I think we need to continue to keep that pressure up and continue to ask ourselves that question. So that, let's finish on, on a, I suppose, a mildly positive note, but I, I'm hoping we can make it positive. Obviously, the ladies have just won the Euro football championships. Yeah, fantastic. Right? So, so the Lionesses, and I know there's a big discussion around whether we should call them Lionesses or not, but, you know, that's what they're called, and I, quite, I think that's okay. Um, so they've won the football. And this is, you know, huge pouring out from the, from the girls that are in the team saying, this is more than just a football match we won. This is about being able to impact society. Yeah. Do you, do you think, how, how, do we, how do we take this win to really make an impact on society? We have to make sure that we don't let the narrative die away. It's, it can't just be a momentary celebration. And actually what's been really lovely in the press and in the media is the number of people talking about actually the legacy, just not just not just the women who won today, but the women who laid the groundwork. And I think not just not just talking about football, but just generally when we look at um, the, the phenomenal women who have come before, who have la- laid the groundwork in all sorts of sectors and areas and in life. Um, and we have to continue to shout about that and we need to continue to make sure that space uh, is carved down we've got to make sure it's not just a moment we need to continue to drive that and recognize that um and um and give space to that um and i think that again is everybody's responsibility um it is recognizing those achievements and um and what's really lovely is being thirsty for more. And we've heard that in that narrative, actually, what next? And making sure that we're ambitious um, in that. Um, and we don't um, we, 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 we don't settle. I mean, we've spoken a lot about the challenges, for example, in the criminal justice system, but huge amount, huge amount of work being done across the sector, um, across many, many charities who are challenging that. And we know when those processes, when those um, systems have been challenged. We do see positive outcomes, and we need to make sure we continue um, uh, uh, to do that. And we need to make sure that, as I said, that is everybody's um, responsibility, so we can continue to see some of those positive outcomes. So, okay, final thing. I know I said just last thing, but this is final thing. What are your five top tips then for personal safety? Or that's a difficult one, Phil, because it depends on what what your what, what let's talk about let's, let's talk is. about women and girls in terms of you know young women or women and girls are going out to an, you know for an evening whatever with friends. What would your top tips be? I mean, the first thing I would say is trust your instinct. It's really really important to trust your instinct. If you don't feel safe, if you um, you're experiencing unwanted behaviours. Uh, go to a trusted friend or go, there's lots of um, uh, different campaigns running like Ask Annie. Um, you can go to staff in the venue, you can go to staff in the platform and report it. That would be the second thing I would say. If you really can, I'd really encourage you to report it. Report it to the staff, um, uh, report it to specialist services like ours if you think you're experiencing harassment um, or, or, or stalking. Seek help. Um, uh, it It's we shouldn't be uh, accepting these behaviours. A lot of these behaviours are criminal behaviours and we need to be 
calling them out. So if you can, I'd also encourage you to report to the police. Um, and there are, like our services, numbers of specialist services that can help you through that process and, and help you to navigate those systems. That's three. That's three. You've got two more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't really touch on we do a lot of work in terms of loan working as well yeah, and, yeah. Um, and 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 um, uh, personal safety in the workplace. I mean, a lot of this is about um, employers' responsibilities as well, but it's always great to have things like a buddy in any uh, in any area of life. So, um, you know, you can touch in with them and say, I'm, I'm here and they can check in with you. And um, we do that a lot in the uh, a lot um, in the workplace. And we've got a huge amount of campaigning that's happening around taxis and private high vehicles as well. We're calling for minimum standards and licensing um, because at the moment it's all too easy for somebody who's been convicted of serious crimes to go into one licensing authority and get a, a license and and, um, uh, and and not have it granted in another area. So um, again, if you're, if you're out um, late at night, um, remembering things like taxis, um, uh, you can be hailed, private high vehicle can't be, they need to be pre-booked, things like that, um, because we see a lot of, again, curb calling, things like that happening. So having a, you know, a number on you uh, where you can um, pre-book that taxi um, uh, and uh, making sure that you can see the licences on that vehicle. I would say one thing, um, as a tip for, for, for anybody really, but we know that statistically if if you as a woman approach a man and ask for their help you're almost mm. almost always likely to be safe because mm. because predators will make themselves known if you like um so the, the example that was used was if somebody asks you can i help you can i help you with your bags you should probably say no because why are they asking you and, the, and there's mm -hmm. evidence around how they how they um they kind of team these events in terms of set them up if you actually go and say to somebody, could you help me with my bags? The chances of you picking out somebody who's a predator are so remote that actually, um, you know, that's the better, better way to do it. So, you know, arguably, if you are feeling uncomfortable, if you are um, unhappy, if you are worried, you know, then, there's a, you know, if you were to approach somebody and say, I'm scared or I'm, you know, I'm, can you just stand by me for a moment? Can you wait with me until a taxi comes or something? statistically they are saying that you're more you know you're very likely to be picking someone who's going to be safe with you because a lot of men feel very uncomfortable about you know men like me would for instance i wouldn't come up to someone and say can i help you because i know how mm. uncomfortable that would make you feel mm. but actually if you came up to me and said excuse me could you just stand here for a moment while i'm waiting for the taxi then i then i would absolutely do that so i think this instinct thing and there's loads and loads of research around trusting your instincts and I know, and I know that you know, copying the, the, one of the books has been written on it. Whenever I investigated people who, you know, women who'd been raped or seriously assaulted, they would always say there was just something about him. Mm. And what happens very often is you shut your instinct down because you don't want to be rude or offend anyone. You know, when you're getting hassled in a bar and you're, you know, you're, you've said no, and they keep coming back, and you know, listen, I've said no. Um, if I, if you're not going to accept my no when I when I say no to a drink, you're sure as hell not going to accept my no later on when I say no to a sexual advance. So, you know, I think the instinct thing is we we don't understand and we don't recognise how how and why our instincts are there and how powerful they are. Um, 
And I think whenever we talk to people who have who have been in situations, they nearly always say there was just something about that person, and we do, and they shut their instinct down. So your mm. first point about listening to your instincts is so important. Yeah, absolutely, and actually, most people who call our frontline services will often say. I don't know if this is something. I don't know what it is because I haven't potentially identified it. But yeah. it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And it doesn't, the, the, the instinct. And just going back to your point in public spaces, actually, Phil, I would say that's really interesting research. Um, but it, the instinct actually goes the other way in that when um, when someone's experiencing harassment and somebody else might come up and help, the, the instinct, you, you know whether or not yeah. somebody yeah. You, you potentially want to be standing next to sure. or someone who... Um, so again, just coming back to that bystander p- approach, yep. just and there's ways to do it where you know you're not um, intimidating or you're not um, stifling someone or or, or 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 making them feel trapped in. Yep. Um, but they may they will instinctively know as well yep. whether or not that, that's a person that they want yeah. to get yeah. support from. I, I kind of meant more about a random person just coming up to you and asking to help you. You know that sometimes yeah. that's a bit. And I, you know even even if I'm walking behind someone day or night, I, I cross the road often because I just know. I don't want to be walking, if I'm walking at a faster pace, I don't want to be walking rapidly approaching them because they're going to feel intimidated or scared, et cetera. So I often cross the road absolutely. and walk around. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Because that is something that, that women will be being attuned to. If somebody's walking really quickly up behind them mm. and they can't see or the visibility is not clear, absolutely. So there are small things like that. Listen, I, I, I'm going to end there because we otherwise I could end up talking to you all day about this. It's, <laughs> it, it's two things. One, it's it's... It is fascinating. Two, it's so important, you know. And I, I've got, you know, obviously I'm, I'm married. I've got sisters. I've got niece, nieces, um, and so you know, when when you when you understand the issues, um, and then you understand the importance of those issues, because you know, if you're thinking about wolf whistling a girl who's who's walking down the street, you know, think to yourself about how that would make your sister or your daughter or somebody feel before you do it. If, if you're going to do that sort of behavior, think about how that would feel if somebody you loved had that behavior done to them. You know, if you're going to start commenting on a woman online about what she looks like or what have you, think about how somebody you love might feel about that. Because too often people just do these things and don't personalize it in terms of, oh, they get very upset if someone did it to their daughter, but they're quite happy to do it to somebody else's. So I think it's such an important subject and one that we really need to keep talking about. I think the women and girls piece, you know, I think that in a, the 97, 90 odd thousand people and several hundred million were watching the girls win the football and supporting them and everything else. But we can't let it end there. We've got to keep mm-hmm. this going, keep this conversation going. Men have got to be part of the conversation, as you said, because because we need to understand it and we need to, we need to also, um, you know, be able to stand up to it and and and, and kind of call it out when we need to. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Suki, from the Susie Lampley Trust. What we'll do is we'll make sure that all of the relevant links uh, are are on the podcast so that everyone can see them. Um, And if you are somebody that's listening to this and any of the issues that we've talked about are of concern to you or anyone else, then, you know, don't don't stay silent. Call out, contact the Susie Lampley Trust or any other of the organisations that are out there or the police that, you know, even if you're just unsure, even if just something, as Suki said, it just doesn't feel quite right. Don't yeah. suffer in silence. Reach out, talk to somebody, share your concerns and stay safe. 
Thank you for listening to the Online Bodyguard podcast with host Philip Grindel, CEO and founder of Diffuse. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platforms.